Are we ready? All right. Ezekiel chapter 43. We've been taking a chapter a a night recently. We're going to slow down a little bit tonight. You'll see why. We're going to look at chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, and then uh, we'll be in chapter 44, verses 1 through 3 for a little bit. Ezekiel is going to fall down at the glory of God only to be lifted up by the Holy Spirit so he doesn't miss recording anything for us. I think that's sweet. And so let's talk about this glory. After the Exodus, the Israelites encamped at the base of Mount Sinai. God's glory was sitting on top of that mountain as he gave the law to his people. The next seven chapters of the book give a detailed instruction of how the people were to build the tabernacle in the wilderness. And then from chapters 38 through 40, Moses recorded how the Israelites carried out God's instructions for building the tabernacle. When the tabernacle was completed, that cloud of God's glory came over it and filled it. So great was the revelation of God's glory that Moses himself could not even enter into the tabernacle. Now, God's glory stayed with Israel in that tabernacle This was the fulfillment of his covenant promise to Israel that he would be their God and that he would literally dwell among them. God hung out with his people there until Solomon built the temple that David had planned and provided for. Then his glory filled that structure. Here's how it reads in 2 Chronicles. I'll just read it to you. And the Levites who were the singers, all those of Asaph and Heman and Juduthan, with their sons and their brethren, stood at the east end of the altar, clothed in white linen, having cymbals, stringed instruments, and harps, and with them 120 priests sounding with trumpets. Indeed, it came to pass when the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his mercy endures forever, that the house... The house of the Lord was filled with a cloud so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. And then it continues in chapter seven. When Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because of the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. When all the children of Israel saw how the fire came down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and praised the Lord, saying, For he is good, his mercy endures forever. Historically, we fast forward to the 6th century B.C. in the time of Ezekiel's prophecy that we've been studying. Ezekiel witnessed the presence of the Lord, his glory leaving the temple. This happened in stages as God's glory first left the Holy of Holies. We read about this back in chapter 10. It paused at the threshold of the temple. Ezekiel described the process in detail as cherubim angels moved with God's glory from place to place. And then later in chapter 10, the glory of the Lord left the threshold and rested above the east gate of the temple, then left the east gate of the temple and rested on the mountain east of the city, the Mount of Olives, God's glory Had departed. It had been with the Israelites in the wilderness, in the tabernacle, in Solomon's temple up until that point. And then God said, That's it. I am leaving. My glory is departing the temple as the Babylonians came and destroyed Solomon's temple. The Israelites would return to Jerusalem 
rebuild a temple after their exile in Babylon ended around 515 B.C. It was called, it's commonly called the second temple. Some people refer to it as Zerubbabel's temple because he was the governor at the time involved in its rebuilding. Half a millennia later, perhaps a decade before Jesus was born in Judea, the second temple was in such severe need of repairs that the reigning king of the region, Herod the Great, refurbished it completely, greatly expanding its size. This is the temple we normally think of, uh, the one we see the ruins of today in Jerusalem, and that we see the models of the temple that stood during the time of Jesus. Now, it's interesting, the glory of the Lord never dwelt in the second temple, never. Neither will the Lord be present in the temple that will be built during the Great Tribulation. The glory of the Lord departed at the time of the Babylonian captivity and it's going to return in the millennium. And so you fast farther forward to the millennial kingdom, which is the 1000 year reign of Jesus over the earth following his second coming. He sets foot on the Mount of Olives, then comes in at some point through the east gate of a millennial temple. And once again, the glory of the uh, of God will dwell among his people on earth. And so in chapter 43, we're picking up this story about the return of the king, the glory of the Lord coming into the millennial temple. He says, afterward, he, and we've established in previous studies that it's the Lord himself giving Ezekiel this tour. He brought me to the gate, the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of God, of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters and the earth shone with his glory It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when I came to destroy the city. The visions were like the vision which I saw by the river Kabar, and I fell on my face. And the glory of the Lord came into the temple by way of the gate which faces towards the east. The Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple." Ezekiel has to be excited, obviously, not just because he sees the return of the glory of the Lord to the temple, but he had witnessed the earlier, you know, even before it happened, the, the, the destruction of that temple. And now it's all coming together for him. Now, Jesus is coming again. When he ascended into heaven from the Mount of Olives in the first chapter of the book of Acts, the two men in white were there who said, To the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so the disciples, still confused about the kingdom and what we call eschatology or the doctrine of the last days, they're on the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascends into heaven, and suddenly these two men are there, these two witnesses And they said, uh, you know, you guys, you're just going to stand here all day, basically? They said, you know, the Lord's going to be coming back to this spot, but in the meantime, you have work to do. There are things that the Lord told you to do. One author spoke of Christ's second coming this way. He said, there is nothing more clearly stated in the Bible than the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. The second coming of Christ to this earth, His visible, literal, physical, glorious return is explicitly referred to 1,845 times in the Bible. It is mentioned in 23 of the 27 New Testament books. It's an amazing fact. 
He's coming to the Mount of Olives. Here's the description in the prophecy of Zechariah. I'll read it to you. This is the return of the Lord, his second coming to the Mount of Olives. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. Shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea. In both summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name one. And all the land shall be turned into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem shall be raised up and inhabited in her place from Benjamin's gate to the place of the first gate and the corner gate. And from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses, the people shall dwell in it and no longer shall there be utter destruction. But Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Now, it's hard to be dogmatic about the exact sequence of events at and immediately following the second coming. But here are a few things that we know are going to take place after his second coming and before the millennium begins, before the kingdom is established, Jesus must judge the nations. He's going to identify believers and non-believers who have survived the ravages of the great tribulation. Non-believers will be cast into Hades to await the second resurrection and their final eternal judgment. Believers will enter into the millennial kingdom as its first citizens. In Matthew 25, this is described as separating the sheep from the goats. In his prophecy in chapter 12, Daniel tells us that will be an additional length of time between the end of the great tribulation at Christ's coming and the beginning of the kingdom on earth. Daniel speaks of an additional 30 days, then of an additional 45 days. Nowhere are we told why these additional days are necessary, and so we speculate that they are needed to complete the judgment of the nations we just mentioned, as well as gather Israel to the Messiah and just make preparations for the establishment of the kingdom. At some point, Jesus is going to come to the temple that has been built, the millennial temple, and he will enter it through the east gate. And that's what we're reading about in Ezekiel 43. Now, the millennial temple, this future temple that exists during the thousand year reign of Christ, will not be a refurbished tribulation temple. It's not the tribulation temple now inhabited by Jesus because it's uh, the millennium. We learn from Ezekiel, we've already seen that the millennial temple will not be built on the site of the first and second temples. It's in a new location, which earlier was described by Ezekiel as the separation. Several passages of scripture tell us that at the Lord's second coming, there's going to be a great earthquake that upsets the topography of Israel. We just read that the Mount of Olives itself is going to be cut in half. And the, everything's going to be laid down to a plane. And so the temple mount, as we know it, apparently isn't going to exist anymore. And it's reasonable to suppose that the tribulation temple will be destroyed by this earthquake at Jesus appearing in glory or sometime during the final military invasion of Jerusalem during the battle 
of Armageddon. Engineers have determined that the millennial temple being described by Ezekiel is too big to fit on the current temple mount anyway. Its dimensions are too large. You couldn't do it. It's going to be in a different location. I came across some fascinating, Gene mentioned, mind-numbing information about the Mount of Olives. It's just things that I didn't really know. I don't know why I didn't know. You probably knew them, and you're going to say, yeah, I knew that. I can't believe you didn't know that. But here's some stuff. I like this one. I'm going to read this to you. The Jewish calendar, extremely important in the religious life of the nation. The entire religious cycle of Jewish worship is based upon beginning the calendar on the correct day. Accordingly, the Jewish calendar is based on a series of monthly cycles. The feasts of the new moon, Passover, tabernacles, and others were based on when each month began. The appearance of the new moon was the key. The Sanhedrin, which is the highest ruling body in Israel, had the sole authority to decide when the new moon appeared. A special court of three individuals was delegated the task to test witnesses who could testify that they saw the new moon. And they would then be able to declare that the new moon had come. Once a determination was made by a court of three, a fire signal went out to inform the Jewish people everywhere of the new month. They didn't have Twitter in those days. No social networking. uh, No real communication of any kind. And so they did signal fires. And the fire signals began where? At the Mount of Olives. The Junior Jewish Encyclopedia, yes, there is such a thing, says this about those fire signals. In ancient times, before astronomical calculations were made mathematically exact, the people of Judea watched the skies for the appearance of the new moon. As soon as it was spotted by witnesses, great bonfires were lit on the hilltops to speed the news. Burning torches signaled from mountain to mountain, beginning with Jerusalem's Mount of Olives and on as far as the Babylonian frontier as jesus ascended from the mount of olives think of this it was the greatest signal fire of all history jesus gave a signal that now now not the whole world saw it but spiritually they have in the sense that the gospel has gone out from that place his disciples went from that place jesus ascending into heaven, fulfilling all that the Father had given him to do, putting the final touches on the resurrection, the ascension. And he sent that signal out from that place, and it went from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, and then still today to the uttermost parts of the world. That signal fire continues to burn. When Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, it will again be quite a signal to the world, won't it? that something new and exciting and powerful is beginning. Another interesting fact about the Mount of Olives, perhaps you knew this, but it was news to me. Again, I quote, from biblical times until today, Jews have been buried on the Mount of Olives. The necropolis on the southern ridge was the burial place of the city's most important citizens in the period of the biblical kings. There are an estimated 150,000 graves on there, including tombs traditionally associated with Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And so there's a, a lot of just fantastic uh, things that go on. You know, 
I was having a conversation before we started tonight with one of the brothers about there's a, there seems to be a, a, a growing, well, it's a recycled, but it comes around every now and then. There's a fascination with Jewish things, things Jewish. And Christians, I, I run into a lot of Christians now who are being led over to being, you know, uh, Messianic Jewish congregations and they're, they're going back and keeping the festivals and the feasts and all this kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, I think there's a lot of things that we don't know because we're not Jewish. But I get more excited about this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, if we needed to keep the feasts and the festivals and the holy days and the rites and the rituals, don't you think Paul would have told us? Don't you think, uh, you know, he would have said, hey, now you guys, you know, you're not really Christians until you get circumcised and eat a certain way and keep the Sabbath and do these certain things. No, he was ready to, I mean, he called people who taught like that dogs at one point. He called them the dogs. I mean, Paul, I'm not saying that, don't you didn't hear me say that about anybody. Paul, the apostle, he called people dogs that tried to bring Gentiles into the bondage of Judaism. I, but I do get excited. I mean, you know, the fact that Jesus is he's taken off from the Mount of Olives and he's given a signal to the world. Take it to the world now. Take this fire, this this fire that then fell on the disciples on the day of Pentecost. And take it into the whole world and let the world know that the Messiah has come and is coming again. Now, let's talk about the East Gate. It's sometimes referred to as the Golden Gate. It was the main gate to the first and second temples. It was through this gate that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday as the crowds hailed him as king. It might be the existing East Gate that we see and uh, on the Temple Mount, or some archaeologists think it might be a lower East Gate. Who? It's crazy. Archaeology is a crazy thing. Is there any, any archaeologists here? I, wouldn't you like to just do that, you know, get a little brush and just, you know, I, I think this is a gate. How do you know? It looks like a rock. No, no, this is a gate, you know. And uh, it's, it, it'd be fascinating. Now, Ezekiel mentions this East Gate again in chapter 44. I promise you that we'd be there for a minute, and so here we are. Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened and no man shall enter by it because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. And therefore it shall be shut. As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, but he shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. When we get to chapter 44, we'll talk about who this prince is. But for now... Uh, we're just talking about the gate. According to several sources I researched, the current east gate of the second temple was sealed centuries ago, and it remains sealed today. Here's an example of what you'll find if you search this out. It's interesting, this author says, that this gate is the only one of the eight gates in Jerusalem that is sealed. The Arabs believe that since the Jews expect the Messiah would come through this gate, they would try to prevent any possibility of his return. In 1517, when the Turks conquered Jerusalem under the leadership of Suleiman the Magnificent, he commanded that the city's ancient walls be rebuilt, and in the midst of this rebuilding project, for some unknown reason, he ordered that the eastern gate be sealed up with stones. Legends abound as to why Suleiman closed the gate. The most believable one is that while the walls were being built, a rumor swept Jerusalem that the Messiah was coming. Suleiman called together some Jewish rabbis and asked them to tell him about the Messiah. They described the Messiah as a great military leader who would be sent by God from the east. He would enter the eastern gate 
and liberate the city from foreign control. Suleiman then decided to put an end to Jewish hopes by ordering the eastern gate sealed. He also put a Muslim cemetery in front of the gate, believing that no Jewish holy man would defile himself by walking through a Muslim cemetery. Now, that's, some of that is speculation, but that's the story, and historians are sticking to it. Now, this is interesting, as we've said, because Ezekiel, he prophesies that this gate is going to be sealed and it was sealed and it remains sealed. But as we said, you have to be careful when you're looking at prophecy, the millennial temple will not share the same locale as the current temple ruins. The Bible Knowledge Commentary notes this and says this, some have thought that this golden gate of Jerusalem now sealed is the gate spoken of here. However, the dimensions of the gate do not correspond with Ezekiel's gate, which is still future. And so the point of verses 1 through 3 of chapter 44 seem to be that when Jesus returns, only he will use the east gate of the temple. No one else will ever use it. He will initially enter the temple through it and it will be his to use exclusively. And so, as much as I'd love to, to say, look, you know, Ezekiel prophesied that gate would be sealed and it remains sealed, um, that's true, uh, but that's probably not the gate that we're talking about. Because we're, you know, we're, Jesus is not going to come back to a temple that's been rebuilt during the tribulation on that mount. He's going to come back to a devastated Jerusalem they will rebuild a temp- they will build a millennial temple that is uh, some way similar, many ways different than this temple in a slightly different location, uh, and he will then enter through that east gate. And so, very, very interesting. Uh, you know, and here's the thing: it's kind of interesting because usually when you get to this part of Ezekiel, uh, it's like chapters 40 through 48. Maybe you get one study in this. Uh, talking about, yes, there really is going to be sacrifice in the millennium, and so let's move on to Daniel uh, and stuff. And so you, you miss all of this great stuff about the Mount of Olives and about the temple and the fact that it's in it, and it helps you in your thinking when you're putting all this stuff together. Now, I want to return just in, for a, a devotional moment uh, to Ezekiel the prophet because we've seen that, that he's had some crazy experiences Uh, some real highs, and this is certainly one of them. Uh, He was so overcome that he fell on his face at the vision of the return of the Lord to the temple. And I, I say amen to that, right? I mean, you know, it's not every day that the Lord of glory returns to his temple. And if that's not an occasion to fall down, I don't know what is. And so Ezekiel goes down. The Holy Spirit immediately lifted him up. I like that. Instead of being prone, the Spirit wanted him upright so that he was able to witness the moment when the glory of the Lord filled the temple uh, and record that for us. And so uh, I got to just thinking about this, and if you'll allow me some liberties, uh, we often think that the most powerful manifestations of God in our midst are those that overcome us, those that knock us down, those that render us incapacitated. And I'm not saying that that can't happen. I can't help but think of Saul in the Old Testament being overcome by the spirit of prophecy or Saul of Tarsus who became Paul the Apostle on the Damascus Road being overcome by Jesus. But here in our text, there was a powerful 
manifestation of the presence of God in which the Lord specifically wanted his prophet to be on his feet, on duty, with his wits about him, witnessing and recording everything. It can be hard for us individually and corporately as a church to stay balanced in this area of God manifesting himself uh, to us through the Spirit. This is, Gino mentioned, he was talking about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. And some of you have been to, you have different backgrounds, various church backgrounds. And uh, some of you have been to uh, pretty wild Pentecostal churches and really conservative uh, churches on the other side. And you know that this is a hard area to keep balance in. Because on the one hand, we see all manner of excesses in the Holy Spirit and they get blamed uh, on him. And it's really just fleshly, weird behavior. I mean, people do all manner of weird things uh, and draw attention to themselves and lose control and all of that. On the other hand, we can be so quick to quench anything that is out of the ordinary, even though it may fit within biblical parameters. And so I, I admit this is a tough area. It's, it's not easy to navigate these waters. Every now and then a movement will occur in which the Holy Spirit seems to be doing remarkable things. The problem is some of those things are just unbiblical. The explanation put forth by the proponents, and I've heard this many times from many different sources, is that when the Spirit moves, uh, initially there are going to be non-biblical, unbiblical excesses. But that's just the way things are, and then over time things will kind of balance out. And so, in other words, what they're saying is that anything goes. As long as something's happening, it's probably God. We'll figure it out later. And so if people want to start barking like dogs or laughing uncontrollably or, uh, you know, Chuck Smith tells stories of people literally beating their heads on the wall you know, and he asked them, what are you doing? He says, the Holy Spirit's making me do it. Uh, you know, then the, these people would say, yeah, that's normal. That's the normal thing that happens during a time of revival because, you know, people are just overcome and overwhelmed. I, I don't think that's true. When it's really the Holy Spirit, it won't violate anything biblical. It may be unusual, but I don't think it can be unbiblical. Uh, this is something that Gino was alluding to earlier that, you know, sometimes the Holy Spirit is blamed for things. He's like the, the crazy brother in the Trinity or something. You know, it's like, oh, the Holy Spirit just showed up and people are doing all manner of weird things. We need to get a handle on that. You know, who let him out? And, and so, you know, I mean, uh, but the problem is we have a sense that, gosh, something is happening and I don't want to quench this and, and ruin it. Uh, and so we better just let it happen and, and, and we'll worry about it later. And so that's an extreme. But here's something to consider on the other end. This is kind of interesting. I, uh, this, is, this is a mind blower. Jonathan Edwards, great preacher, theologian, missionary to the Native Americans. He's considered a hero in the Puritan heritage and by those who adhere to conservative reform theology. He was extremely conservative, I would say. He was also involved in a notable revival. And now listen to this tidbit. It's from a D. Martin Lloyd-Jones essay on revival. And Lloyd-Jones, another really solid, we would say, conservative theologian. Here's what he said. Edwards 
had to defend a number of unusual and remarkable phenomena that occurred in the revival of the 1740s. He had to defend and does defend the fact that even the body may be affected. Edward's wife, on one occasion, exhibited the phenomena known as levitation. She was literally carried from one part of the room to another without making any effort or exertion. Sometimes people would swoon and become unconscious in the meetings. Now, what do you think about that? Does that sound unbiblical? Well, it does, but not really, at least not the levitation. After all, aren't there several instances of Bible characters who were supernaturally carried from one place to another? It doesn't happen every day. It's never happened to me, by the way. I still have to get in my car and drive to save Mart when I want milk and cookies. You know, I, it, but uh, Philip... You know, he's on the road there the, uh, and he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch and he baptizes the guy. And as they come up out of the water, he's gone. He's been transported to another location. Now, are we open to anything like that? As long as it's biblical, we really should be. And so I'm just saying, you know, it's probably not going to happen tonight. I was trying to figure out a way with mirrors. I could just disappear right now, but that would freak too many people out. But uh, this is how he did it. Anyway, uh, but uh, so you understand what I'm saying. You understand what I'm saying. We too easily, uh, you know, fall into kind of habits. We don't want to go all Corinthian. And, and I think you know what I mean by it. Read the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul, you know, just... You know, hitting, he was hitting his head on the wall, but not because of the Holy Spirit. You know, it was because of them. I mean, there's just out of line, out of order. And he tried to bring order to their assemblies, uh, but preserve the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to go Corinthian. Neither do we want to always be quenchers of things. And immediately, hey, what's happening here? Forget that. We need to quench that right now before this gets out of hand. Uh, all I can say is that the Lord is good, and I believe that he can lead and guide in this area. Uh, I do find it fascinating, uh, you know, we'll end where we began with this, I find it fascinating that Ezekiel is essentially slain in the spirit, you would say, we would say, you know, he, he falls down at the power of God in the presence of God, and in this case, the Holy Spirit says, yeah, I need you standing. I need you to get up. Uh, right now is not the time to be overcome by the presence of God. You're recording this for people you you need to see this this is something you need to witness you have to have your wits about you you don't have time to be beating your head on the wall right now and stuff and so uh it's the, the manifestation of the presence of god always in our midst uh maybe unusual sometimes uh but always welcome as long as it's biblical